Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the world of pain in which all new planning information is found, and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you. Lucy Fraser has been appointed as Housing and Planning Minister, the fifth person to hold that role this year. What do we know about her and what's in her in-tray? A company that specialises in winning permission for big housing schemes for other people to build has won an appeal against the refusal of 290 homes on an unallocated greenfield site. We'll explore why the scheme was allowed. But permission for a similar-sized scheme has been quashed by the courts after an error was found in the way that the council had assessed the level of heritage harm it would cause. We'll examine what went wrong. And in our deep dive section, we'll be exploring a Supreme Court ruling that a 55-year-old planning permission can no longer be implemented and its implications for other developers and landowners potentially relying on old consents. By the end of the show, you should know enough to impress your colleague and bore your family. So, time to polish our specs and wrap our heads in cold towels. Ready to venture in? OK. Well, here we are again in room 106. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight? My first story is that we have a new housing and planning minister. Lucy Fraser has been named as the fifth housing and planning minister this year, replacing the short-lived Lee Rowley. Fraser, the MP for South East Cambridgeshire, had been appointed early this month as a minister of state at the Department for Leveling Up Housing Communities. It was only last week that she was confirmed as the new Housing and Planning Minister. Her responsibilities were announced by the Housing Department at the end of last week, and they include overall housing strategy, as well as planning casework, planning reform, and design and building better. Okay, so what do we know about her, and uh, what sort of planning track record does she have? Well, she's been the Conservative MP for South East Cambridgeshire since 2015. She had a brief spell as a minister at the Department for Transport. She also served as a Treasury Minister and has held ministerial roles at the Ministry of Justice. Before she became an MP, she practised as a barrister, specialising in commercial law in London, and was appointed as a QC 10 years ago. Before her appointment by Delerc, she doesn't appear to have said much about planning. However, on her website, it says that she campaigned against the Sunica Energy Farm, which is a huge 1,500 hectare solar energy project on the Suffolk-Cambridgeshire border. Fraser has described it as the largest solar farm in Europe, and it's a nationally significant infrastructure project that's being examined by the planning inspectorate. So it's not something that's going to be determined by the local council. But she said that the scale and design of the application is not appropriate, and she's also concerned about the impacts on local villages the use of what she calls the best and most versatile farmland and the use of battery energy storage systems close to people's homes. And she says she's raised these concerns with the planning inspectorate and Sunica, the applicant. In 2018, she also campaigned against plans for an energy from waste facility at Waterbeach in Cambridgeshire. And this project was actually refused by the county council and then uh, refused again by the housing secretary at the time. 
but she hasn't just campaigned against schemes. Her website also expresses support for investment in infrastructure in southeast Cambridgeshire. And among the projects highlighted include works to improve the capacity at junctions 37 and 38 of the A14. So we haven't been able to uncover anything that she said about the thorny topic of planning for housing. Okay. It's quite interesting that she's got a sort of um, a relatively clean slate, I guess, as that topic's concerned. Uh, I suppose solar developers might be a bit concerned to see her record of sort of local opposition to a big solar farm. But um, I suppose all of this might just be fairly standard stuff for a um, a local MP raising one or two issues about development locally. I might not say anything about her sort of having a sort of preconceived position on those um, types of development as a national level. No, that's right. It seems quite common practice for um, local MPs to um, to express those those kinds of views. But yeah, we, we might have expected to find out more that she said about planning for housing. Okay. And since she's been in the post, I know it's only been a few days, what has she said about planning? Well, the week before last, which was actually before her housing and planning brief was confirmed, but she had been confirmed as a, a Minister of State at Delurk. She spoke at a parliamentary reception and she said she wants communities to be empowered to contribute to the discussion about planning. She said that what people often object to isn't always homes. It's about ugly large developments that are crowbarred without their consent into areas, satisfying demand in the wrong places at the expense of what gives an area its identity. She then said she'd be working very closely with the newly appointed Secretary of State, Michael Gove, to make sure that we have a housing market and a planning system that's fair and supports our principal mission of this government, which is to level up across the country. So local consent for new housing appears to be high in her agenda, and this echoes comments made by her boss, Michael Gove. In a tweet after she was appointed, she said, building the homes we need and helping more people into home ownership are rightly important priorities for the government. Delighted to be given the opportunity to contribute to this work as Minister for Housing and Planning. So here she's highlighting the importance of home ownership, which has long been a Tory priority. And according to an article in Housing Today, she spoke last week at the Federation of Master Builders Conference, where she said that planning reform is a major area of focus for the government, but she cautioned that it would take time to modernise what she called the Byzantine system. I guess it doesn't feel like that massively takes us forward in terms of understanding what particular slants you might add to um, the government's agenda. It sounds like... um, you know, almost any one of the last um, handful of ministers could have had the same thing in their speech. And uh, and I guess uh, she, she might well have had the same civil servant writing the speech for her as wrote it for several of her predecessors. Yeah, that's right. I think she's probably still getting to grips with the brief. And I think that, that really touches on the frustration that a lot of people in the planning and development sectors feel is, is that, you know, we've had a new housing minister every few months now, and obviously it takes them a while to get up to speed. And, and some of them are going to be pretty unfamiliar with the way the um, the planning system works. Yeah, and I'd say that's a good thing, actually. I think it's, it, if she's holding off a bit before making any particularly decisive policy interventions until she understands a, a bit more about the detail of the sector, then um, that's a good thing. It's it, The worst thing is when um, a minister comes in and starts making kind of big, big pronouncements without really having a chance to um, to get their head into the brief. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you certainly don't want people making um, ill-informed comments about things. Okay, so what's piling up in her in-tray at the moment? Well, she's got the levelling up and regeneration bill, 
which is currently in the report stage in the House of Commons. And as our listeners know, there's lots of um, proposals in there to change the planning system, including the creation of a new infrastructure levy, replacing the current system of planning gain contributions and putting in place powers for a new suite of national development management policies and giving enabling powers to introduce street votes, among a host of other changes. So there's also the proposed review of the National Planning Policy Framework, which was announced by the government back in May when the levelling up bill was promised. At that time, they said that the changes to the MPPF would include scrapping the requirement for councils to maintain a five-year housing land supply if they've adopted a local plan within the past five years. It would also refocus the MPPF on plan making because the government intends to create this national development management policies document to guide decision making. And it says that as a result of that, the rest of the MPPF will be refocused on plan making policies rather than development management policies. Beyond that, there's also the ongoing issue of nutrient neutrality, which is holding up consents for tens of thousands of homes across England. And obviously finding a solution for that will be a a key priority. And given that Gove in his previous tenure as Housing Secretary made very few decisions on call-in applications and recovered appeals, I think he actually made none. She's likely to be signing off plenty of those decisions. But one project she may not be getting involved in is investment zones, which were announced by the Trust Government only recently and involved deregulation of planning environmental rules. But the new administration seems to be going cool on and Gove actually said last week that the programme is under review. And it's not been assigned to any minister in the, in, in the latest published sort of share out of, uh, of ministerial responsibilities? Yes, that's quite notable, isn't it? My second story is a big appeal decision involving a prolific land promoter, Gladman Developments. It's our most read story of the past fortnight, and it's about Gladman winning an appeal against a council's refusal of his application to build 290 homes on an unallocated greenfield site. So it's a land promoter and, and, and um, you know, hence, as we, as we said earlier, it's a, it's a company that specialises in getting land allocated for development or, or getting planning permissions without actually building schemes itself. It largely sells on the land with the permission to somebody else who will go and build it. Yes, that's their business model. So why did members refuse the application in the first place? Well, the decision was taken by members against a recommendation for approval from planning officers, which, as we've previously discussed, can often leave councils in a weakened position if they're defending their refusals at appeal. According to the inspector's report, the council's decision was based on concerns about the scheme's location. So members felt that it was not a sustainable location, was concerned about the impact on landscape and the impact on local ecology. Okay, so why was the appeal allowed? Well, key factor was that the council was unable to demonstrate a five-year housing land supply. And that means that the MPPF's presumption in favour of sustainable development applied, which means that the local housing delivery policies were rendered out of date. So the appeal site was in open countryside, which went against a policy in the adopted local plan. But the inspector considered this to be out of date because of the housing land supply deficit. With regards to the benefits of the proposed development, the provision of new housing 
and the positive environmental effects were both uh, raised as key issues by the inspector. So his report said that the delivery of new homes and the meeting of uh, the identified housing need in the area would be a very significant social benefit. He also highlighted the provision of 23% of the homes as affordable housing. He found that the development would deliver a biodiversity net gain of around 31% for habitats and 12% for hedgerows, a level that would be notably above the Environment Act's impending target of 10%. And he concluded that the environmental benefits for biodiversity and green infrastructure should be afforded significant weight. In addition, he said that the council was preparing a new local plan, but it was only in its nascent stages and unlikely to be adopted before the end of 2025. Finally, he considered that local plan policy did actually support the proposal, which sets out corrective measures for managing housing delivery should any material underdelivery against the plan's annual housing requirement arise, which the inspector found that in this case it had. And it includes positively considering additional sources of housing supply, including sites out of defined settlement limits subject to criteria. So the inspector found that this policy would be engaged in this instance and did support the proposal. Okay, so it's prompted a huge amount of interest, this story. Why do you think that is? Our readers seem to be very interested in appeal and application decisions involving Gladman, which is a land promoter based in Cheshire. The company's gained a reputation in some circles for being fairly aggressive in pursuing appeals when councils have refused its applications. Research by planning in 2019 of the Compass database found that Gladman had submitted more than twice as many planning appeals against the refusal of major housing schemes than any other appellant in England between 2012 and 2019. Yeah, well, they, they certainly are, um, for some people in the, in, in the sector, they're, uh, they're seen as notorious. I think other people see them as a, an extraordinary example of um, how you can build a business on um, a deep understanding of particular facets of the, uh, of the planning system. Okay, and then uh, what's your final story, John? The final story is a court case where a judge overturned an inspector decision on a major residential scheme. And the scheme in question is a high-rise 289-flat build-to-rent scheme in Newcastle. And the planning inspector's permission was overturned by the High Court after a judge ruled that the inspector took into account a legally irrelevant consideration when assessing the level of harm to a nearby listed church. Our readers are often interested where inspectors' decisions have been overturned by the courts. Okay. So what was the case about? So the scheme has been proposed for Newcastle Quayside. The plans were refused permission by Newcastle City Council in March last year. The scheme involves a 14-storey tower as well as um, some commercial uses. The site's owned by the government housing agency Homes England. The council cited concerns about design quality and space standards when it refused permission. Following an appeal by the applicant, a planning inspector overturned the council decision early this year and approved the plans. And what were the inspector's grounds for granting permission? In her decision, she noted that the site was in public ownership, the proposal was fully funded and deliverable, and the plot itself was a long-standing development site in what she considered to be a prime quayside location but it remained vacant for a long time because various proposals had never got off the ground 
She did criticise aspects of the block's design, interestingly, describing its appearance as somewhat regimented and serious. But she said it would sit comfortably in the proposed location. It would not appear incongruous with the established character of the quayside. She found that harm to a, a nearby church, St Anne's Church, would be less than substantial. She concluded that the economic, social, environmental benefits of the proposal were more than sufficient to outweigh the heritage objections. And then following her decision, the council subsequently launched a legal challenge to it. So the judge said that the inspector's observation that the harm to the church could not be further minimised by adopting alternative designs was immaterial. And this may have affected her conclusion on the level of harm, which she found to be towards the lower end of the less than substantial category. And the judge said it follows that the inspector took into account a legally irrelevant consideration when she reached her judgment on the level of harm that that would be caused by the appeal proposal itself. So the judge concluded that decision must be quashed and the appeal determined afresh by a different inspector. Okay, so that's what happens next, is it's going to go back to the planning inspectorate? Yes, that's right. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Okay, many thanks, John. Uh, Of course, more details of all of these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk Uh, as well as our planning briefing on the levelling up and regeneration bill, which may be of interest to anybody who's interested in what uh, Lucy Fraser has got in her in-tray. For now, I'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's deep dive, in which we'll be exploring a Supreme Court judgment that could have big repercussions for any developers or landowners counting on building on the basis of an old planning permission. See you later. Bye for now. Okay, but to do that, I need to find our correspondent, David Blackman, who is going to be in a particularly dusty corner of Room 106, where the legal judgments are gathered. Ah, there he is. Ah, hello, Richard. Hi, David. I understand you've been uh, looking at an important legal ruling on the validity of a permission granted more than 50 years ago. Indeed, a particularly dusty corner of the legal archive. This is a consent that was granted in January 1967, so it's two months older than me. Uh, The first time I've ever, I think, dealt with a planning case which is older than me. So this was for 401 home housing estate in Snowdonia National Park, even though it wasn't actually Snowdonia National Park in those days, granted by the long-defunct Merioneth County Council. It was granted for a master plan that was drawn up by John Maiden, who um, some of our architecturally minded readers might or listeners might be aware that was the essentially the architect who defined the skyline of, of post-war of post-war Birmingham. So buildings like the Birmingham Central Library and so on, the old Birmingham Post and Mail building, they were all John Maiden buildings. A lot of them demolished now. But the difference is that this is a um, that for this particular permission, this 401 home permission, it's never actually been built. In fact, only about 40 homes have ever been developed on this site in the 55 years since the permission was granted. And I understand that at some point fairly recently, the Snowdonia National Park Authority made the landowner aware that it no longer regarded the permission as implementable. And that's when the sort of legal battle really began. Is that right? That's right. Yes, yes. There was a a bit of a tussle in the 1980s 
when the, the, the in the end the High Court ruled that the permission could be implemented. There was a challenge by the then local planning authority. But um, fast forward 30 years, in 2017, there was some activity on the site and the Snowdonia National Park Authority, which has now taken over jurisdiction or planning jurisdiction over the site. It claimed that the original consent could no longer be implemented. And what were the grounds that the Park Authority was arguing in saying that the um, permission could no longer be implemented? Well, this is where the Pilkington principle enters the stage, um, not one of Sherlock Holmes's more obscure cases or a 1960s spy novel, but um, this is a long-standing principle which dates from a 1973 case, so it's almost as old as the, uh, as the hillside consent itself. And this fundamentally states that a permission can be, can be rendered invalid if it becomes physically impossible to deliver as a result of another permission. So the original example that this stemmed from was a developer wanted to build a bungalow, got permission for a bungalow on a site. He then got permission for another bungalow on the same site. And the, the tussle then was from the local authority was, well, that the second permission meant that the first permission was, was almost physically impossible to deliver. So in the end, he, got, he, he, didn't, he didn't get his permission. And so in his application to this case, the Park Authority was saying that a number of permissions granted since that 1967 permission, which had been built out, made it impossible to implement that 1967 permission as envisaged. Yes. The problem here was that in the, well, in the 30 years since the 1987, since this was last dealt with by the courts in 1987, another 20 homes have been developed, some of them without planning permission, some of the homes that actually built been built over the access roads, which John Maiden had put it put in his master plan. So yes, so essentially the Snowdonia National Park Authority's case was that the original permission couldn't be implemented. And then that battle went to the High Court with a landowner challenging the um, the, the Park Authority's stance. On what basis did the High Court, which sided with the Park Authority in in 2019, what was what was the basis of that of that judgment? Well, the High Court essentially upheld the Pilkington principle, the idea that the original permission was, in inverted comments, physically impossible to implement now. And the site owner then went to the Appeal Court and subsequently went to the Supreme Court, and we've just had the verdict on that in the last couple of weeks. But in both cases, the verdict went in favour of the, of the Park Authority. So what was the basis of those rulings? Well, fundamentally, again, they upheld the Pilkington principle. And the importance of this for people who are involved, you know, for, for one of the significant things about this case is that the Pilking principle has been upheld by the Supreme Court, i.e. Britain's highest court. So it's the first time that the Supreme Court has ever dealt with the Pilkington principle, because it's not, a, it's not in statute, it's not a result of, a, of an act of parliament. The Pilkington principle itself is a product of case law. So it's important that it's received that kind of high level endorsement. Okay, so it's got a sort of uh, a rubber stamp on it now, which... Um will deter other people from wanting to argue the case. Yes, yeah. Okay. So what do commentators say about the potential implications of the ruling? The concern is that even though the, uh, even though the hillside consent itself is 55 years old, fairly unusual, and you know, it's, it's a full planning permission, the real concern for a lot of developers, applicants, strategic land operators, is that this will affect the delivery of, particularly of, of large sites which have to be delivered in phases over several years. Particularly, they're worried that it will reduce the flexibility with which you can approach these kind of large sites. 
At the moment, a common tactic on the part of many developers will be that um, for a site which has to be delivered over several years, that they'll want to insert so-called drop-in applications. I, they want to tweak an application. For example, they may have included a, uh, a hotel in the development when it was originally drawn up. They discover five years down the line when it's been developed that hotels no longer work. You know, the market for hotels may have collapsed or it may long, no longer work in that application. So what they'll do is they'll try and produce a drop-in, what they call a drop-in application, to insert into as another planning application to, to kind of tweak the development. So to bring forward something to insert into the original application to bring forward some kind of de development which perhaps is more viable. Or it can also be used by people. You know, it's, it's quite common with these big phase sites is that they'll be broken up and they'll be parceled out to different uh, developers, different house builders, very, very common practice. And of course, those house builders, um, developers may have slightly different ideas about what they want to deliver on the site. So again, they'll want to use the drop-in application as a mechanism. And the worry for many people is, is that the hillside judgment makes the, 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 the concept of the drop-in application more difficult to deliver. Okay. And because of that, I understand from, from your article that they think that the implication of making drop-in applications more complicated could feed through ultimately to casting doubt over some council's five-year housing land supply positions. Yeah, well, that's a concern that was raised by the KC who represented the hillside developers. He just raised the concern that it's a complicating factor. It may cause delays on bringing forward elements of sites. And of course, these sites are very important for delivering council's five-year house housing land supplies. So it may just it may just throw a spanner in the works with the council's ability to deliver that five-year supply. Okay. Now, another thing I understood from your article was that it's not simply that this judgment has sort of shut down the possibility of varying a consent, because I, I, as I understand it, it did kind of suggest some other possible routes to, to varying a consent. Tell us about that. So the real concern before this came forward was that the, uh, the Court of Appeal judgment was quite a lot blunter. So there were real concerns that the drop-in applications would have been extremely difficult to do if the Court of Appeal judgment had been allowed to stand. What the Supreme Court judgment does is it introduces circumstances in which drop-in applications can be used. One example would be the, the judgment says if, a, if, the, if the change is a non-material one, that can be done. So that's a way that can be found. They say that um, if the drop-in application, if the tweak can be delayed until the last minute, i.e. the last phase, that's, that's another way it can be done, because in that way, it's not making any other element of the scheme impossible to deliver. So that's another one. Another suggestion they have is that the applicant could go back and reapply for permission for the, for the whole site. But that's seen as pretty problematic, because then that raises all sorts of questions, like you know, whether you need to do, do a fresh uh, environmental impact assessment, on all those other sort of you know, other other technical documents that go with planning applications, so that's not seen as a runner by consultants and developers. And I understand as as well that for those who are who might be alarmed and 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 developers and landowners who are relying on these you know old permissions um, might well be alarmed by this verdict. But I think, um, as I understand it, there are um, types of permissions for large projects which are less vulnerable to being tripped up by, by this judgment. It, 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 tell us about that. 
Yes, yes. So this is a full planning permission. Yeah, the hillside consent was for a full planning permission. That's the kind of consent that you wouldn't even seek to achieve these days on a big site. You're much more likely to use an outline application. Now, the gray area is how this judgment is now applied to outline planning permissions. That's a bit of a gray area and it's probably going to be have to be tested in court at some point. So <laughs> no surprise, you know, probably, probably a case of further litigation. But a way might be found that as long as the application is structured so that it's very clear at the very outset that it is a phased application, then it may be possible to break it down into its constituent parts. But the important thing is to make sure that for the local planning authority and the developer and their advisors to work very closely together on these big schemes, which are going to be phased over several years, to make sure that a way can be found they can be, can be compatible with this judgment. Okay, but it's critical that it's made clear right from the outset that this is something which is in a whole series of segments and uh, therefore that provides a route to varying the permission in the long run. Yeah. Fantastic. David, thank you very much for that. I'll leave you in that rather um, forbidding-looking um, corner of Room 106 of the legal judgments, but look forward to seeing you back in here on some other occasion. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Right, now to find John again, so he can select his quirky story of the week. Ah, there he is. Hi, Richard. So, my quirky story of the week is a story done about a senior planning inspector official who has vowed to accelerate appeal decisions and accepted that they are taking too long. But as part of that, he's advised planning lawyers not to resort to theatrics, in his words, in order to help speed up inquiries. Does he specify what these theatrics are? He didn't, actually. It was Richard Schofield, who's the head of planning inspector profession at PINS. And he was speaking on the Have We Got Planning News For You webcast, which is hosted by a group of planning barristers. Well, he first admitted that PINS has had issues with the speediness of appeal decisions, which has been an issue for a long time. And he vowed to get quicker. He talked about ways that the parties involved in appeals could help speed up the process in addition to measures PINS was taking. One element of his advice was that in appeal inquiries, advocates such as planning and barristers should not try and score points over adversaries or witnesses and to avoid theatrics. He said, it is irritating when an advocate ventures into petty and pointless point scoring, he said. So he didn't go further, but obviously he was speaking to a, a group of planning barristers. So I guess they were probably hoping that it wasn't aimed at any of them. Yes. I suppose it immediately raises the question of if these theatrics are delaying planning inquiries, why aren't the inspectors sort of stopping them? I don't know enough about it, but um, uh, presumably it's in the inspector's power to um, cut them off if anyone's um, indulging in behaviour that's going to waste time. Yes, you'd have thought so, wouldn't you? Uh, maybe the inspectors are are under the spell of the um, the advocates concerned and are enjoying the theatrics. Yeah, maybe. Okay, well, thanks very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. 
and look out for our Planning for Housing conference in London on this Thursday the 17th of November. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. Bye.